Hey, Obsassinacs, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassinac Files. I am so glad to be here today because I am talking 213 Dragonfly and Amber. It's my favorite episode of the entire series of Outlander. So I'm really, really, really looking forward to getting into it with you guys. Before that, though, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanac Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and Amazon Music, as well as Podbean and some other smaller platforms. If you haven't had a chance yet, make sure you head over to the Sassanac Files blog to check out my latest entry, which is the fifth edition of Outlander Book Club which is basically just a read-along I'm putting together for those that haven't read Outlander or are wanting to reread it. So if you're looking for something Outlander-related to do during Droughtlander, make sure to head over and check that out. Also on our Facebook page, we are currently working on the best episode of Season 3 Bracket. I just released the final four today, which includes Of Lost Things, First Wife, Freedom and Whiskey, and A. Malcolm, which I think is a pretty good final four, not gonna lie. Uh, there might be one or two that I would switch out, but honestly, I feel like those are pretty good selections for season three. Speaking of Facebook, if you are not following the Sassanac Files on social media yet, make sure you head over to Instagram and Facebook to like and follow on all of those platforms for the latest and greatest news on the Sassanac Files, Outlander, any cast projects or things like that. It was announced in a Parade article with Sam Hewen earlier this week that Season 6 is going to start filming in January. So, barring any COVID complications, hopefully we will have some new filming within the next couple of months, and I am super excited. Right now, some of the cast are working on different projects. I know Sam is in London filming Text for You, which I'm actually really excited about that movie, so hopefully we get some new Outlander stuff going on. Diana announced a couple of days ago that she was finished with section four of the newest book, and there are going to be five sections. So maybe, just maybe, guys, we will have a publishing date by New Year's, which I'm not really holding my breath, but fingers crossed. All right, I think that's all of the announcements out of the way. So without further ado, let's get into season two, episode 13, the season finale, Dragonfly and Amber. And this is the only episode of Outlander thus far that is more than an hour long. And it is so worth it. So worth it. I feel like the format of this episode is fantastic. The way that they jump back and forth between the timelines was seamless. The acting was superb. Just everything about it makes me have all the feels. I was going to say warm and fuzzy, but that's not really how I feel watching this episode. I really feel like somebody's ripping my heart out and stomping on it, but in the best way possible. <laughs> so I really do love this episode and let's get to talking about it. The first thing that I really want to talk about is Brianna and Claire. They have a really complicated relationship. And I think the show made it a bit more complicated than it was in the books, but 
It's an understandably complicated relationship, and we get more of a look at that at the beginning of season three. But Claire, especially after the events of what happened in this episode, she's understandably distanced from her life in the 20th century. I mean, she did what she did for her child, for Brianna, but it's not the life that she wanted for herself and she literally left half of her heart behind in the 18th century when she left Janie. So I don't think that Claire necessarily blames Brianna for what happened, but I think there's probably at least a small part of her that resents what happened. And I mean, she says as much in season three and we'll get to that eventually, but it's a really fascinating dynamic between these two. And you can feel it right from the get-go. There's a distance between Brie and Claire. I'm really glad that they expanded upon it in the next season because I feel like it's worth exploring. Claire, especially once she went to med school, was not there for her daughter as much as Brie would have liked her to be. So as a consequence, Brie was much closer to Frank. So... In this episode, when Brianna finds out that Frank is not her biological father, that stings a lot. It's not a situation like you have a child that was adopted and they know that their parents are not their parents. Like, Brie grew up her whole 20 years thinking that Frank Randall was her father and was really close to him. He was a great father to her. And now all of a sudden she's finding out that this man that she loved and revered all her life and kind of has this idealized version of in her head because he's passed away and she's kind of remembering the best parts of him. That is the man that in her head her mother betrayed. So you have the parent that she's really close to versus the parent that is kind of removed in a lot of ways. Yes, she's still her mother, but she just didn't have that relationship with Claire. So when she finds out that Claire cheated on Frank, I mean, she's oversimplifying things quite a bit. And I don't think that's any secret. And I think that Brianna, by the end of this episode, realizes that she has oversimplified things by a mile. But in her head, she's just so defensive of the father that she loves. She doesn't want to accept the fact that there was another man and especially doesn't want to accept that her mother loved that other man more than she loved Frank. This is where I really appreciate Roger's role in everything because he's able to help Brianna take a step back and say, look, you said you wanted to know no matter what. And this is it. This story, whether you like it or not, is the truth. So sit down and let your mom talk, you know? So I really, really appreciate that. What I don't appreciate, and I feel like did the character of Brianna a disservice, was when Brie finds out that Jamie is her father, and she looks at Claire and she says, well, only two people know what the truth is, and one of them is dead. Too bad it wasn't you. I'm like, okay, that was below the belt. Like, I get that she's upset. I do, 100%. It's a reasonable reaction to be upset, finding out that 
not only did your mom cheat on your dad, but that as a result of that infidelity, your father's a different man and you've been lied to your entire life. Like that is hard to swallow on any given day. And so I get that she's upset, but not allowing Claire to get a word in edgewise and then insulting her and saying she wished she was dead. That's just, that's real bitchy, in my opinion. (laughs) I'm sorry, that is not okay. So I don't think I'm alone in how I feel with that, but it still kind of makes me upset to hear that. And it stings Claire too, you know. Brie has Jamie's temper, and you really see that come out in this scene, but there's one particular moment in this argument between Claire and Brie where Brie was like, stop trying to explain things away to me. Just admit that you screwed up and that you fucked somebody else while you were still married to daddy, like a million other bored housewives. And Claire, who has up until this point tried to keep her cool and explain things rationally to her daughter, just loses her mind and said, I wasn't bored and what Jamie and I had was a hell of a lot more than fucking. He was the love of my life. And I think whether Brianna wants to accept it or not, she realizes that like, oh shit, like my mom actually did love this guy more than she loved my dad. And that hurts Brie a lot, to be honest. But I think this situation really offered a great jumping off point for exploring Brianna and Roger's relationship. We really get the feeling in this episode that it was kind of love at first sight, at least for Roger it was. Brie is a bit more cautious of the relationship, and I think it reflects Jamie and Claire's relationship in a lot of ways, or at least the beginnings of their courtship, because Jamie knew from day one that Claire was the one for him, and Claire was much more cautious about the entire thing. I mean, obviously she had her reasons, but I love that they use Brie and Roger's relationship kind of as a mirror to this epic love story that we are so familiar with. And as they go through the highlands, it's really just like you feel this new relationship and love story developing in the supernatural arena that the first one took place in, especially when they go to Fort William and Brianna, for some unexplained reason, the place just gives her the creeps. Well, of course... That makes sense for us as show watchers because this is the place where Jamie was flogged 200 times and nearly died. So yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, but it's just so interesting to see the 1960s timeline being woven into the 18th century timeline to create this fabric of the show. It's really just fantastic that they could do it this way, the showrunners could, because Honestly, I think that's what makes me love this episode so much is that they have completely turned the show on its head and we have this relationship between Jamie and Claire still at the core of this show. Like that is the thread that holds everything together, right? 
but we also have these new characters being introduced. We have this strapping young Scotsman, Roger, who's a professor at Oxford. We have Brianna, who is the daughter of Jamie and Claire. And we're seeing how they fit together along with how they fit into this story. And it 100% makes sense that Brie gravitates towards Roger. And we'll get into this more in season three and season four as we discuss their relationship as it develops. But to me, it always made perfect sense that Brie and Roger fit together because Roger is a perfect mix of Brianna's biological father and the father that raised her. It's nature versus nurture. I don't know. I personally love Roger as a character, and I know that there are extremely differing opinions on this. And like I said, there will be time set aside here in a couple of weeks to discuss that at length. But um, Brie and Roger's relationship always made sense to me. And it's you can see it's not an easy one. And they definitely struggle with each other at times. But that in the end, it is a faded relationship. And that is what, when Tony Graffia was asked about this episode, that's the one thing that she said, perhaps more than anything else about this episode they wanted to get across, was the fact that Brie and Roger are really in the fabric of this supernatural world that we're in, they are meant to be together. And that is one thing that they wanted to convey in this episode. And I think that they really did. As far as book adaptation goes, I think that at least Roger was pretty faithfully adapted in this season two finale. They kind of strayed in season four. And I think that's where it lost a lot of people. But this is the Roger that all of us book readers were expecting. And I think that he's a pretty endearing character, especially in this episode with the way that he handles Brianna and Claire both. They have a great rapport and Roger's a a really complicated guy. He's not simple by any means. And that started right from the beginning. His family tree isn't even what it appears to be. That's how complicated this guy is. He's the seven times great-grandson of William and Sarah McKenzie, but if you'll remember back to the last episode, The Hail Mary, Colum reveals to Claire that William and Sarah McKenzie couldn't have children, and so they were given a child to raise. That child is Galus and Dougal's bastard offspring. So, really, Roger is the descendant of Dougal McKenzie and Jillian Edgars. How much of a mindfuck was it when Roger shakes Jillian's hand <laughs> when we're meeting her? Um, Jillian or Galus, as people are more comfortable with remembering her as. But yeah, it's so freaking crazy that he actually met his seven times great-grandmother. It just blows my mind to think about this giant circle we're in with this episode. Again, one of the things that I really love about it is that everything is interconnected. In the grand scheme of Outlander, a million things are connected to another million things, and a lot of people see that as coincidence and Some people are uncomfortable with the level of coincidence in this, but I really think it speaks to the supernatural element of this series that whether you notice it or not, 
everything is connected. And you may not get that connection until two or three books later, but it's all there. The seeds are planted. It's really fascinating stuff. And one of my favorite scenes of the episode probably comes really early on. It's the scene between Roger and Claire. Roger's father has just died, and I thought the beginning of this episode was so genius. It has credits. The opening credits are a television show in black and white, which immediately signals that we are no longer in the 18th century. We have pushed forward in the timeline. So we've literally come an entire arc and then some for this entire season because the very first episode of season two was in the 1940s when Claire comes back to Frank, comes back through the stones. Then we've gone through the entire season two as a giant flashback. And then we have now blown 20 years past the present as it is provided to us in episode one. And we're in the 1960s, 20 years past when Claire has come back in 1948. So as if the black and white television show in the credits isn't enough of a signal that this episode is going to be different. The very first thing that we see in this episode is we're zooming in on this stranger. He's definitely a good looking guy, right? And we see that he's upset about something. Like, there aren't even words. There aren't, There's no dialogue. But we immediately know that something is off with this young man and want to know more. And I think that 100% speaks to the kind of actor that Rick Rankin is because he's just phenomenal. Like, you immediately feel sympathy for this man and you know nothing about him. Or at least you think you know nothing about him only to find out that he's really we Roger Wakefield that we met in season one, the tiny, adorable, freaking cute little boy with the dimples that is Reverend Wakefield's adopted son. So, again, we're drawing the lines. We're, we're coming to the conclusion of these arcs and reaching jumping off points for the rest of the series, all within the context of this one episode, which is really fascinating. And so we get to this scene with Roger and Claire, Claire can't sleep, and she's come down to grab a dram of whiskey. And it leads up to this beautiful conversation wherein Roger knows that Frank has passed away. And so he's asking Claire, how do you do it? How do you say goodbye to that one person you love most in the world? Because that was his father for him. And he's thinking that Claire can identify with him because she's lost her husband. And Claire tells him, you know, I've never really been very good at goodbyes. But that's the hell of it, right? That whether you want to say goodbye or not, they're gone and you have to go on living because that's what they would want. You can see that Claire is really, really upset as she's talking to him, like a wistful kind of mourning. And she's not talking about Frank. Obviously, we as show watchers know that she's talking about Jamie and the grief that she feels over that 20 years on is still completely evident in every move that she makes, which has 
created this rift between her and her daughter because she's so removed from the world. She doesn't feel a connection to her life. The only time that she really feels connected is when she's with her daughter, but her daughter reminds her so much of Jamie that it's painful for her. And when she's practicing medicine, those are when she feels most fulfilled. So this conversation between Claire and Roger is really Claire voicing her guilt because she never said goodbye to Jamie. On that day, when they parted at Craig Nadoon, all she could say was, I love you. I love you. Over and over again. But she never said goodbye to him. He said goodbye to her. And I think that she really regrets not having that goodbye. But that provides this wonderful line of closure that we get later on in this episode. There are a couple of really great scenes. Katrina Balfe, stellar performance this episode. She just knocked my socks off. The first scene would be when she returned to Lollybrock. And it's really this downtrodden and dilapidated estate with no roof, no windows. It has a keep out sign on the front door. Everything's grown up and it's just really awful looking. And she's remembering the last time she saw that in its heyday with Jenny and Ian and everybody saying goodbye as Jeannie and Claire rode off to find Simon Fraser. And you can hear all of these echoes of the first time she was at Lollybrock and meeting Jenny and being introduced to wee Jamie and Jamie talking about how his father built Lollybrock from the ground up. And she's thinking about all the great memories that she has and all of the loved ones she had there that she hasn't seen in 20 years and will never see again. It's a really powerful moment. And then we get this voiceover of this poem that within the span of the books is a really symbolic poem. We get mention of it a couple of times and we hadn't had mention of it yet in the series. So I love that they threw it in here and they had Jamie and Claire speaking it to each other. It really just like rose the hairs on my arms especially with Bear McCreary's music. And then they're talking about a thousand kisses and then let amorous kisses dwell, you know, the whole nine yards. And Claire's just touching her lips, remembering the feel of Jamie's kiss. And she looks and she sees for just a moment him standing in the archway there. Oh my God. It's like, it makes me want to cry just thinking about it because It is such a powerful moment. You really just feel all the grief and emotion that this woman has kept pinned up inside of her for 20 years. She hasn't even been allowed to speak Jamie's name out loud because of the agreement that she made with Frank. And here she is sitting by herself at Lollybrock, revisiting those memories for the first time in a long time, and it's just all kind of overwhelming her. So then this kind of leads into taking her own advice, right? She told Roger, whether you like it or not, they're gone, and you have to go on living. This woman has had 20 years with no closure, guys. She hasn't been allowed, she's literally, it's like Katrina Balfe said in an interview 
for the official companion of Outlander. She said this woman has had the door of her heart closed for 20 years and hasn't been allowed to process that grief at all. She's just been shut off from the world. So when Claire decides to go to Culloden and she sits down at that stone, Katrina said, you really just see the veil lift off of her face. And if only for a moment, she is the young girl that she was 20 years ago. And that in her heart, she has always been that girl that she was with Jamie. Even though she's just talking to his grave, she, at least for a moment, is that person that she was with him. And that's the girl that she has always been in her heart. But it's been 20 years of hiding that person from the world. So it's a very emotional thing to watch. And I think that scene probably gets me... (laughs) Sorry, I'm like blubbering like a baby. I apologize, guys. But it really gets me. That scene at Culloden is probably more powerful to me than the actual goodbye scene at Craig Dune because you really just, it's not an immediate emotion anymore that you're, you're not feeling just the goodbye with Jamie and Claire. That's what you're feeling when you watch the Craig Dune scene. You're feeling that immediate, like, oh my god, this is so painful <laughs> to watch these two willingly say goodbye to each other. But when you watch the scene with Claire at the Fraser Headstone at Culloden, you're getting 20 years worth of that energy (laughs) all being emitted into the air and into the world. And I think Katrina does such an amazing job with that scene. There's this one camera move at the end of that scene when she puts her hand on the stone and says, goodbye, Jamie Fraser, my love. And the camera zooms off of her like pulls out and it really just felt like that symbolized a weight being lifted off of her shoulders like she's finally said goodbye which is something that she has never been able to do she's been carrying that weight with her for so long and you really just I felt with that zoom of the camera pulling out like it was this this burden being lifted off of her so I really dug that camera move. It really spoke to me as a viewer and it made sense in that moment to do that. So I guess since I'm already an emotional wreck, we will go ahead and talk about the 18th century timeline that we've got with it. It's complicated, right? I mean, in this episode, we don't get that much time in the 18th century, but the time that we do get is jam-packed with plot. And it makes sense because we have built up to this day. This is the day of Culloden. We've built up to this for the past 12 episodes. So we have to cover probably the most critical day of season two's 18th century plot. And we probably only spend about 20 minutes total in that time span. Because most of the episode, Dragonfly and Amber, is 
in the 20th century, dealing with getting to know Bree and Roger and putting together all of the pieces. I felt like the first transition into the 18th century was kind of brilliant. We're in the 20th century, and as a viewer, I think the first time I watched it, I was like, okay, is this all going to be in the 20th century? Because in the book, I'm not going to get into it, but the general format of the book is we are consistently bouncing back and forth between the 20th century and the 18th century. It's a good chunk of the beginning of book two, and it's a good chunk of the end of book two that are actually in the 20th century. So as a book reader, you're constantly wondering, okay, are we going to spend this entire episode in the 20th century? Because we never got any of that at the beginning of this season, which is where it was all supposed to take place. It's very interesting, and I love that they chose to include it all in the end. I love that they bookended it this way. That's part of what my draw is to season two, is how they formatted this season. It's never been done in television before that I can think of, and it's very hard to pull off, so I honestly doubt that it will ever be done again. It's just brilliant. The way that they transition into the 18th century is Brianna is laying in bed, and Claire is sitting on the bed next to her and draws up the covers. And she's looking at Brianna's profile with her gorgeous auburn hair and her fair skin. And she's saying, God, you're so like him. Again, this is before anybody knows that Jamie is her father. So Claire can only admit this to herself, that her daughter looks like the love of her life because it's a secret. And so that throws us into this whirlwind of Culloden. Jamie is having one last ditch effort to convince Charlie that this isn't going to work. We need to pull out. We need to turn tail and run. And Charlie's not having any of it. And Charlie honestly, like, gives Jamie a bit of a tongue lashing because he's like, you're my Thomas. And in the Bible, Thomas was one of the apostles that did not believe Christ had been resurrected. He didn't believe that any of it had happened until he saw the wounds of the nails in his palms. And so Charlie is telling Jamie that you just need to believe in this cause. You don't need to have the why and the how of it. You just need to believe in it. And Jamie's like, obviously thinking, well, I don't believe in it because I know it's not going to work. Like, you're a dumbass. And you could just feel this radiating off of Jamie. He's, he's at his wit's end. I mean, they've just come from a 13 mile march by night. This happened the day before or the evening before. And so they've probably literally just returned to camp. It's sunrise. And he's trying futilely to get Charlie to forget this madness, but obviously that's not going to happen. And when they realize that it's kind of a lost cause, Claire says, well, there's one more choice. And this is when they kind of hatch the plan to kill Prince Charlie, because the entire cause is based on 
the Jacobites' faith in Bonnie Prince Charlie. Well, if Charlie is no longer there to rally behind, then it's all a moot point. So let's just kill Bonnie Prince Charlie, which is irony of all ironies, because at the beginning of season two, that's what Myrta said. Why don't we just cut the Italian fop's throat and be done with it? It's like, yeah, they probably could have saved themselves a lot of time and energy if they had just let Myrta kill Prince Charlie. But no. So I think that Jamie is pretty hesitant to do this, but he knows that it's literally the last option. And Claire, I don't think she's necessarily talking him into it so much as explaining her plan. And Dougal overhears this. Oh, Dougal. This scene is, it's so funny because I've been reading Clanlands by uh, Sam Hewen and Graham McTavish. If you guys haven't read it, oh my God, you need to. Or listen to the Audible version. That's what I've been doing. And it's actually read by Sam and Graham. It is so worth the time. It's amazing. And they reference this scene quite a bit because there's like this unspoken grudge that Sam got to kill Graham on screen. And so that's what I think of when I watch this scene now. But the acting in this scene was so amazing. And Dominic Priest, who was the stunt coordinator for this scene, he was like, I don't mind if I do saying that it was a really good scene. And there's this one move in the scene where Sam gets kicked backwards and he slides across the floor. And Sam is one of those actors that absolutely wants to do every single stunt that could be required of him. He doesn't have any qualms about like just putting himself out there and just doing the work. And Dominic had to like sit him down and be like, I know that you can do it and I'm sure it would look amazing. But if you got hurt, you would be out of work for like days. We can't afford that. So the stunt devil had to do that portion of the scene, which I think kind of... (laughs) Hurt Sam's feelings a little bit, maybe. I don't know if hurt feelings is the right word, but, like, it disappointed him that he didn't get to do it. Because I think he prides himself on being one of those actors that will literally do all of their own stunts if they're allowed to. I really liked this scene, and I thought it was so interesting that Claire, in the end, helps Jamie kill Dougal which really upset Diana Gabaldon when they made that choice because it makes Claire complicit in Dougal's murder. And that is not in Claire's character to do that. She doesn't kill people. That is the one thing that just is not in her. So I think that upset Diana because that was one thing that was not written in the books to do that way. And that's something that was a completely a show idea, but I get why they did it as a show, because whether people like to admit it or not, Claire is a different character in the book versus in the show. And for me, it made perfect sense for show Claire to make that decision. She's in it with Jamie, 100% there with him and will do what he needs. And she could see that he was struggling to do what needed to be done, not physically, but emotionally. And so she got right in there and she did it because she knew that if Dougal lived, they were both going to die. And we don't know it at this moment. I guess we do know it like on some level, but it hasn't been thrown in our face yet. She's 
pregnant. And so it's more than just her and Jamie's lives at stake at this point. It's their child as well. So it's a really powerful moment. And then, of course, Rupert shows up. Rupert wants to turn Jamie in for what he's done. And Jamie asks him, just give me two hours. That's all I need. And then I will come back and face justice for what I have done. And in that two hours, we learn a lot. Like a lot, a lot. (laughs) Starting with the fact that Jamie has been preparing for this day for a long time. Pretty much ever since the letter came when Charlie had forged Jamie's signature to sign the document saying he supported the Jacobite Rising. He was putting plans into place from that point. And even before that, when he was him and Claire were both in Paris, he made her promise, like, look, if this goes south, you need to promise me that you're going to go back through the stones because I can't protect you. So Jamie's been preparing for this. Yes, he's been throwing his heart and soul into preventing Culloden from happening, but he wanted to have contingencies in place in case they weren't successful. So we really see that come to fruition in this episode, Jamie's preparedness. And that starts with the deed of Cezine. Claire notices that it was dated a year ago. So that means that they put all of this into action a year ago before Jamie was a traitor. And so they're going to transfer the deed over to Jamie's nephew so that the property is safe from the retribution of the crown. Because in the aftermath of Culloden, anyone that was declared traitor to the crown lost their title, their lands, and their wealth. Everything was forfeit to the crown. So in putting the estate in young Jamie's name, they've protected the estate and made sure that Jenny Ian and their children will have Lollybrock and that the families at Lollybrock will be safe. This all is taking place and this is how Jamie gets Fergus away safe. He has Fergus take the deed back to Lollybrock and Fergus is then with the Murrays. We get this gut-wrenching scene between Jamie and Myrta. In the last episode, Colm came out and said that he trusted Jamie with Hamish and the Mackenzie clan more than Dougal because he knew that if it came down to it and he knew the fight was lost, he would do right by his men and make sure they were safe versus risking their lives for nothing. And that's exactly what he does with the Fraser men. He knows that Culloden is a lost cause and he's not going to risk his men having to give their lives and their property up for nothing. So he sends them back home and he has Myrta take them home. So this was his way of keeping everyone that he loved and cared for safe. And Myrta says, well, I will put them on the road safe to Lollybrock, but then I'm turning back and I'm coming back to Culloden and I will be there waiting for you when you get there. Because Myrta made an oath to Jamie's mother, Ellen, which comes into play later in the show. Myrta made an oath to Jamie's mother that he would always protect and look after Jamie. And so... When Jamie said, no, I said, I'll not have you die for nothing. Myrta looks at him and says, I won't be. I'll be dying with you. As Jamie's godfather, he is in it to the end with this young man. 
And I think Jamie appreciates that because as much as he's putting on a brave face and doing what needs to be done, he's scared. Like, you know, he's, he's like 25, 26 at this point. I don't think that there has ever been a moment in my life where I'm like, yeah, I will willingly just go to the slaughter. That's fine. And I, I mean, there might be circumstances where I would do that if I had to make that choice to save everyone that I love. But that doesn't mean that I would do it without the slightest ounce of fear. Like, that's just insanity, in my opinion. Like, do you have no sense of self-preservation? And so knowing that Myrta is going to be there with him gives him some comfort, I think. And then comes the point where he's like, okay, I have to make sure that Claire is safe. So we have this scene in the woods where this scene is so weighty for me because it's drawing on every ounce of every promise that Jamie and Claire have ever made to each other. Jamie is sending Claire back and Claire is refusing to go absolutely digging her heels in. I am not going to go. And she does it even more in the books. But Claire would rather die at Culloden with Jamie than be without him. She makes that perfectly clear in this scene. She says, you know, if I had gone to the stake with Galus, you know, what would you have done? And he's like, I would have gone to the stake with you to hell and beyond but I wasn't carrying your child. And Claire, who has intentionally been keeping this to herself, is just like, you can't know that. Like, it's too soon. But we find that Jamie has been keeping track of Claire's menstrual cycles with all the other shit he's been dealing with in the grand scheme of things, this entire crap fest, guys. He's taken the time to keep track of Claire's periods. He knows she's pregnant. And that's just, that's how badly he wanted to be a father. <laughs> you know, there's this real sense of grief in the books because Claire is saying, you know, the thing that we had hoped and prayed for for so many months had come too late. And now it was going to be the thing that kept them separated forever is so painful to think about. It's awful. You have this moment where you realize that what happened with Faith, Jamie blames himself for that a lot, I think. And this is kind of his moment where he's going to dig his heels in and say, we lost one child and I'll be damned if we're going to lose another. And he calls on Claire's promise that she made him in Paris, where he said, if all is lost, I need you to promise me that you will go back through the stones and back to Frank. And she didn't even want to make the promise then, but she did because that's what Jamie needed. And it was this really heartbreaking scene that is all the more heartbreaking in retrospect after you watch this episode, <laughs> because you know that there's so much pain and suffering in the interim. It's just awful. And to see this goodbye between Jamie and Claire, like Claire is adamant. She does not want to go, but Jamie is so insistent, so insistent. And I think in the end, 
her motherly instincts just trump everything else. Even this epic love that she feels for this man because he wants that child to be safe as well. And so I've said it before, but losing a spouse, a lot of people go through that, but it's not a choice that you make. Like it's an accident or it's an illness, one thing or another, but this is a willing choice that they are making to be separated forever to protect their child. And there is something to be said about that, which is all the more heartbreaking when Brianna is in such a state of anger about this entire thing and in denial about Jamie's love for her because Claire knows how much he loved her, even though he never met her. Like, he was willing to give up everything for her, and he did. It's really sad, and I'm glad that in the end, Brianna kind of comes around, because he did. He did everything he could to protect her and make sure that she had a good life. When he and Claire are saying goodbye, and he's talking about what Claire is going to tell Frank, he says, well, most likely he won't want to hear, but if he does, tell him I'm grateful, tell him I trust him, and tell him I hate him to the very marrow of his bones. And if that is not the most Jamie thing to say in this situation, I don't know what else he could have said, because it's humor coming out in a really tough situation, but it's also complete and utter honesty in a way that only Jamie can deliver. Because Jamie is giving the two things that matter most to him into another man's keeping. And he knows that Frank loves Claire. And he's banking on the fact that Frank is still out there waiting on Claire, hoping she's going to come back. And that he will take her back when he does. So it's really a powerful, powerful moment. There's... So much symbolism in this episode, and in particular, the final scene between Jamie and Claire. Literally, this entire episode is a symbol. I mean, the title of the episode is Dragonfly and Amber. And if you will remember back to Just We Pray, when Claire is explaining how she felt laying in that ditch in World War II when everybody else had been killed, and she said she felt like a dragonfly in amber just suspended and helpless, frozen. And that's kind of how she feels. That's why this episode is titled Dragonfly and Amber. Yes, let's take it at face value. The second book of the series is called Dragonfly and Amber. But in the greater span of things, Claire has spent 20 years of her life frozen, suspended, helpless, not able to change and process things. She is the Dragonfly and Amber. Not to mention whenever she transfers that dragonfly and amber over to Jamie on top of Craig Nadoon. So, both of them, really. They spend the next however many years just in a state of not quite a fulfilling life. All of that in mind, when Jamie and Claire are going to the Stones, it was choreographed as a dance. The director when he was interviewed about this episode, said that it was purposefully choreographed that way because it was literally 
Claire pushing against unseen forces and Jamie leading her to where he wanted her to go. He was very insistent that she should go and she was being led to it. It's really just so, so insane. And that they never looked away from each other until that very last moment when she says, I love you. And he says, and I, you. And he turns her around and he says, goodbye, Claire. And puts her hand to the stone. And that's it. Ugh. God. Ugh. Yeah. It's pretty awful. But in in the best way. Like, I know that that's why a lot of people don't like this episode. Like, it's not a favorite for them because of all the heartbreak that's in it. But those are some of the best episodes for me. Like, anything that makes me feel that deeply an emotion just has to be at the pinnacle of creativity. So, the very last bit of this episode is literally everything coming together. We're back at Craig Nadoon. Galus has killed her husband and gone through the stones. Roger and Bree are flipping their shit because A, they just witnessed a murder and B, they just witnessed that time travel is real. So yeah, I can understand how they're flipping their shit. (laughs) But there's this great moment where Bree has been fighting with Claire the entire episode, fighting against believing Claire, fighting against who her real father is struggling with the fact that her mom has been lying to her her entire life. She's been dealing with all of this, but when she witnesses Galus going through the stones, she realizes, oh shit, like she was telling the truth. And there's this wonderful callback. It's one of many in this episode where she says, I believe you. I don't understand it a bit. Not yet but I believe you. And then she says, no more lies. Promise me from now on, there will only be the truth between us. Which are two key moments in season one where Jamie made Claire promise those same things. And that's when Claire says, you are so like your father and just hugs her daughter. It's so amazing. I love it. And I know that some people think this episode is cheesy, but I love it. I love all the parallels. Give me all the cheese, especially in those final moments. Like, it makes a lot of sense because on why Roger believed Claire. And, like, I don't even think he wanted to admit it to himself. And Brianna's like, are you freaking insane? Like, why do you believe her? And, I mean, Claire's telling him everything about his ancestry and everything that happened with her and Jamie and the Brianna is really Jamie's daughter and all of these things like implausible things that Brie herself is like there's no way that this could be true and Roger feels somehow that he's believing this woman like yes it sounds completely insane but there's a part of him that is like but what if it's true And that's how he convinces Brianna. It's like, look, it's either going to be true and we're going to have our minds blown or it's going to be wrong and it's going to give her a wake-up call, like one way or the other. And 
I think that really stems from, A, the deed of Cezanne. I mean, he's a history professor. He knows when things are authentic. B, the things that Claire knows that nobody else knows. And C, the letter that he found, his father's letter. I think he believed and trusted his father more than anything else. And when he found that letter that the Reverend had written to Frank, saying that not only had he found Jamie Fraser, but that Jamie Fraser had survived Culloden, I think that was really, I mean, you see it through the episode. He's reading it over and over and over again. All of these people that he potentially saw in that box labeled Randall that Brianna found, those people were all part of the grander story that Claire just told him and Brianna. So, I mean, that's a huge coincidence. And I can see how Roger... I mean, Roger has an imagination and he's a creative person anyway, but he connects to people and he believes people unless he's given a reason not to. So, plus, he he himself is steeped in supernatural. Like, his entire existence is based on this craziness. I mean, Brianna's is too, but it's just really interesting to see how they all come together in this final moment and when... Roger tells Claire about the letter and she says he survived and then says, I have to go back. This is the moment that got a lot of people. They're like, okay, I can't handle it. But I really, really loved this ending. Like, because as the sun comes up, these frames of footage that we are getting, this is the one and only time in this episode that we see everything in full color. When Claire realizes that Jamie is alive and she can go back to him. Because she's been living in this half-existence, this shadow, this, this gray area in her life. Because Jamie was her life. He is what made everything full color. And so when she realizes that he's alive and she can go back to him, that is when the sun starts to rise and she feels hope for the first time. It's a really powerful moment. And I get that there's the whole, like, well, what about her daughter? Like, any mother would never leave her daughter like that. Like, that's just unrealistic. And we can get to that in further detail in season three. But, oh my goodness. Like, this ending with the music. The music was absolutely fantastic. All the gold stars to Bear McCreary because he was fantastic. This episode was really just firing on all cylinders for me. So, yeah. Totally my number one episode of the series. And season five had one that came really close, but holy smokes, guys. Like, this one just, yes, 10 out of 10. All right, so that wraps up my episode analysis, but I want to make sure to bring in my quote of the episode and my performance of the episode. So, without further ado... I had a quote of the episode and an honorable mention. My quote is, of course, you guys are going to be like, why would it be any other quote? (laughs) It's, when I stand before God, I'll have one thing to say to weigh against all the rest. Lord, you gave me a rare woman, and God, I loved her well. Like, oh my God, Jamie. (laughs) Yes. Love that quote. It gives me chills every time I hear Sam Hewen deliver it perfectly. 
So great. Straight out of the books. I love it when that happens, when it's just like kismet. And then my honorable mention is one from the beginning of the episode where Claire says, Mrs. Graham had warned me not to spend my life chasing a ghost. But now that I was here, the ghosts were starting to chase me. And it's so true. That is probably the overarching theme of the entire episode is you've got all of these callbacks to previous episodes. You have Roger all grown up, Brianna all grown up. You have references to the beginnings in season one when she returns to Lollybrock. You have her going to Culloden where she says goodbye to Jamie. You have Rest Easy Soldier. That is a name, you know, from the very first episode when Claire is like, on your feet, soldier. You've got the Dragonfly and Amber references where she sees the Dragonfly and Amber in the Culloden Museum. It's so crazy, all of these little callbacks. And I've really only seen that in one other episode in this series, and it is the season five finale. In a totally different context, but you're seeing all of these little pieces coming together to make the greater puzzle. So that was my honorable mention. And then performance of the episode is kind of a cheat, but I think that it was an ensemble performance this episode. It would not have topped my list like it did without each and every one of these actors putting on the phenomenal performance that they did. You've got Lotta Verbeek playing Jillian slash Galus. You've got Rick Rankin and Sophie Skelton, who are new to the crew and both fantastic. I'll be honest, Sophie Skelton is not what I expected for Brie, and I have struggled with her quite a bit over the course of the series, but I think in this particular episode, she did a good job at conveying Brie's conflicted state of mind. So I felt like she did a good job. And then, of course, you've got Sam Hewen, who's amazing always. You've got Graham McTavish, who had the perfect mixture of insanity and like cold and hunger and horror and anger, like just all of this, even just in that one scene that he did, it was so fantastic. And then of course, Katrina Balfe, the thread that weaves everything together, her grief and her remoteness and her ability to just change on the turn of a dime from happiness to anger to sadness. It's just all right there in her acting. I felt like the set designers and the directing and the cinematographer, they all did an amazing job and it came together in a perfect storm to create an amazing episode and I just love it. So thank you to everyone who created Dragonfly and Amber. Matt Roberts and Tony Graffia who wrote the episode were just phenomenal. Ugh, I love this episode, guys. I don't know how many more times I can say it. <laughs> So with that all out of the way, I had quite a few comments this week. So I want to read through some of them. So it's time for listener feedback. So my first comment was from Donna Delaca. She says, the struggle between mother and daughter is so relevant to the storyline. Roger, I think, was a good buffer between them because he could see both sides and calm Brianna down. Love this episode. With a little heart. Yes. 
100%. Roger is so perfect for Brianna. He's older and more experienced. He has this way of calming her down when she gets all up in arms. And he also is really great with Claire. Like, they have this rapport, which we only get a few scenes with him together. But when we do get those scenes, it's just the dynamic is amazing. My next comment is from Margie Stock Ward. She said, I liked it, but I have a very hard time with Brianna's lashing out at her mother. She gives the word entitlement new meaning. I would have been her age then, and no matter how upset I was, I would never have spoken to my mother that way. I agree, and like I said earlier in the episode, that scene where she basically tells Claire she wished she had died instead of Frank, (laughs) like, that is so below the belt. I really just and I would never have been allowed to cuss at my mother the way that she did like I would have been slapped across the face I mean I get that you're disappointed in how your mother has behaved and you're angry that you've been lied to about your true parentage but that doesn't give you an excuse to be disrespectful so I yes I agree with you on that Margie Joan Cohen says There was so much material to cover in this episode. At first, I found the switching between centuries a little jarring, but on subsequent viewings, I thought it subtly conveyed the turmoil everyone is experiencing. The fight and death of Dougal was well done and a nice send-off for Graham McTavish, although I'm not sure how I feel about Claire joining in. Events are spiraling towards the inevitability of Culloden, and she's grasping at straws, so I guess it makes sense. Rupert's reaction was spot on. There were many poignant moments, Fergus's farewell, Claire at Lollybrock and Culloden, and obviously the farewell at the Stones. The callbacks made me smile. Rest easy, soldier. Fucking barbecue, etc. And I'm glad we got to meet Fiona. Roger and Brie are so cute together. It was nice to see Roger stepping in to be there for her when she really needed someone. I know people have had mixed reactions to Brie, but I found her reaction to Claire's revelation very real. She's still young and at an age where things are still very black and white. Her mother, who was always a little distant and possibly self-absorbed in her medical career, has just laid a huge bombshell on her. Maybe Bree had some doubts about her own parentage since she didn't look like either parent. Not only is she feeling righteous indignation about her mother's affair, the realization that her parents' marriage was a sham, and that her whole identity is a lie, but now her mother is laying some ridiculous time travel crap on her. I'd be moved to curse and carry on too if that was me. On a side note, hearing Brie mention going to Fort Ticonderoga, a foreshadowing for book readers, inspired me to go there into Saratoga Battlefield this summer. So, heck yeah, Joan. (laughs) All of that. That's pretty much my entire reaction to this episode in a nice little nutshell with (laughs) no analysis involved. But yes. I agree. Like, I understand why Brie was upset, but I also think that doesn't give her a right to speak with Claire the way that she did. I caught the foreshadowing as well, and I thought it was very, very cool. Show watchers, hopefully you will one day understand, but that is something from, like, later books. So we don't know if we're getting that far yet, but fingers crossed. And, um... As for, like, Dougal's murder and all of that, I did think that that fight scene was a great way to send Graham off. I thought that that was, like I said, a really fantastic scene, and his performance helped pull the entire episode together. So I 100% applaud him, and I think that that was very well done. Alrighty, guys. Well, 
that about wraps up this episode. And with that is the conclusion of season two of my episode analysis. So with the holidays coming up, I'm going to be taking a bit of a break from podcasting. I do have a couple of one-off episodes planned with some special guests, so stay tuned for that. I think that I'm planning on taking a one-week break and then doing season two superlatives with a very special guest and then taking another break and doing an episode on the character of Roger and why he is important and why he is often misunderstood. So also have a very special guest planned for that one, and I cannot wait for you guys to hear it. So with that in mind, I hope that you guys have a happy Thanksgiving if you are here in America. I know that with the pandemic, a lot of people aren't getting to spend the holidays with their families. But like I said, I hope that you at least have a little bit of joy and I want to let you know that I am very thankful for all of your love and support throughout this craziness that has become the Sassanac Files podcast. I love you guys, and I really hope that you stay safe out there. I will chat at you in a few weeks. Bye!